0: I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music.
1: Now, if you don't think this song
2: is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Katz. I write about
1: rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are joined
2: in the studio by Baltimore duo Beach House. And later on, we'll review the new release from Erica Badu while Greg adds a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. I'm free, the Rolling Stones sang, Greg. And wasn't it only a couple of weeks ago that the Federal Communications Commission announced this big initiative the Obama administration was going to make to uh, provide more free Internet access to all of America? One giant town hall meeting, an open marketplace for the whole U.S. of A. on the net. Yes, the Obama administration, the Federal Communications Commission, a number of congressmen
1: have said one of the big goals of the next decade is to provide Internet access broadband internet access to the entire population of the united states the concept of the big town hall of the twenty first century is that the internet is going to be that gathering place for everybody but there's a ruling that the u.s court of appeals for the district of columbia just issued that puts a real kink in that initiative the court ruled that the federal communications commission lacks the authority to require broadband providers to give equal treatment to all internet traffic this is in relation to comcast the largest single internet service provider in the united states comcast was basically trying to slow down the traffic of users of the BitTorrent network, used primarily to download and share movies, TV shows, music, etc. So this really relates to our audience in a lot of ways, Jim, as yeah. well. The point being here that there is some question now, this concept of net neutrality is being jeopardized by this ruling, and in effect, leading the way toward what detractors say could be sort of a Internet equivalent of cable television. For more insight into this controversial issue, we turn to Michael Bracey, the policy director of the Future of Music Coalition. Michael, welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Give us a concise definition of what net neutrality is.
3: So the whole idea of net neutrality is basically who gets to control uh, what the future applications and services are that are going to allow consumers to get access to music and, and other forms of entertainment. The basic idea is we feel strongly that the Internet service providers, meaning the cable companies and the phone companies, should not have the ability to really pick and choose what content goes over their pipes. That Rather, that third parties who are developing applications and creating new services need the right to offer those services to consumers. And consumers have the right to use ISPs to go access the services and applications that they want to. With the big caveat that we feel very strongly that we're talking about legal license content. We're talking about services like Rhapsody, we're talking about listening to internet radio stations, downloading films via Netflix, things like that.
1: What exactly are the implications of this ruling for the average internet user and specifically the person who uses the internet for music downloading?
2: Well,
3: we're we're looking at, it's important to think about this in terms of two sets of issues. So on the first set of issues, which are basically the underlying ideas behind that neutrality there really is an emerging consensus everybody who right now is in in control of the policy apparatus basically agrees that it is a terrible idea to let AT&T, Verizon and Comcast sort of dictate the future of how people access content that we need to really build a neutrality as as a fundamental policy the second question though is who writes those rules and who can enforce those rules what the appeals court did is it basically said, look, we don't think the Federal Communications Commission has the authority to enforce the rules the way they attempted to in the prior administration under the leadership of Kevin Martin. What the FCC now has to do is go back to the drawing board and either undertake a process called what's called reclassification, which basically is saying, okay, we're going to rethink the way that over the last five years or six years the FCC has thought about regulating broadband services, and simply reclassify these services and put them into basically our wheelhouse as an agency, or we have to turn towards Congress and say, okay, Congress, we need you to write legislation that clarifies that we have the authority as a regulatory agency to regulate net neutrality, basically to enforce the rules.
2: Well, and it would seem to make sense, Michael. I mean, the FCC controls the radio airwaves, the television airwaves. Everybody with an eye toward the future is saying television and radio are going to be coming at you via the net, along with many other media forms that we haven't even imagined yet. If not the FCC, who would?
3: Oh, no, exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more. This goes back to policy decisions that were made under FCC Chairman Michael Powell back about seven or eight years ago basically, when Internet services migrated from traditional dial-up service to high-speed Internet service, first being delivered by cable companies, Michael Powell really did want to regulate when he was the chairman of the FCC. We disagreed vehemently with with his decision. Many people in Congress disagreed with it. So now where we are today, again, is that there's basic consensus that the FCC has to do this. They have to have clear, transparent rules that everybody understands and and that are completely enforceable the challenge now for FCC Chairman Genachowski and his team is to go back and say, okay, can we basically craft rules that will meet the muster of the courts, that the courts will agree that fall within the FCC's jurisdiction, or do we need to go get new authorizing legislation from Congress that clarifies that we in fact have the ability to do what we need to do?
1: Does this mean that the service providers now, because this reclassification process could take a long time, it could take a long time for Congress to address this issue. Does this mean that the internet service providers now can essentially determine who gets access to broadband and how much they have to pay for it?
3: Yeah, so what we're going to head into is this kind of very uncertain period, which could last as little as two months. It could last as long as many years, where the FCC's jurisdiction is, is really in question. The issue now for the internet service providers are, do they take this sort of blip in history to move aggressively to roll out new business plans and basically new business models that would allow them to monetize content on the web like we all are afraid they're going to try to do? Or are they going to take this opportunity to mine their P's and Q's to stay out of trouble and try to sort of go along this argument that they've made for a long time that net neutrality is a solution in search of a problem? (laughs) Uh, You know, our, our personal feeling is that they're most likely to mine their P's and Q's to not really abuse this regulatory advantage that they've now been granted by the courts. However, as you see in a lot of other industries that have the same type of advantage, you know, radio consolidation being the the obvious example, when corporations are given this sliver of opportunity to really monetize their networks, they really feel compelled to do so.
1: The last uh, question for you, Michael, how do you propose that we're going to be able to keep this open Internet concept and yet still somehow restrict the sharing of those, quote-unquote, illegal music files?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the key question. I mean, it's been our feeling from the birth of Napster that the only way you beat Napster on authorized file trading is by creating legal structures. The primary focus, we feel, really has to be on making sure there's innovation in the marketplace that creates legal models that are exciting for consumers. You know, I think we're still in the early stages of what that marketplace looks like, but there's been such a tremendous explosion of, of legal services in the last five years, and you're starting to get a sense of what that marketplace could look like. In the next five to ten years, are going to be at a point where basically any consumer, any music fan, can get access legally to whatever music they want to get, ideally at prices and uh, using technologies that they have access to and they can afford. We really, as a culture, need to keep focused and thinking about the role of intellectual property, respect for creators, making sure that we have structures that compensate musicians. These are critically important questions. The question, though, on net neutrality is really very simple. Who is going to build these models of tomorrow that are going to work for musicians and music fans we feel very strongly that it's not the internet service providers, it's not the clear channels of the world, it's the people who are out, who are music people who are out innovating, creating new models that consumers are going to really be excited about.
1: We've been talking to Michael Bracey, Policy Director of the Future of Music Coalition, about the recent ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals on the net neutrality issue. Michael, thanks for being our guest.
3: Thanks, guys.
2: The sound opinions and that is the band beach house with a song called better times from their recent album teen dream one of the most interesting bands to emerge from what's called the dream pop scene greg in recent years is this duo alex scally on guitar and vocals and victoria Legrand on keyboard and vocals quite a pair their voices go together magically they are masters of of creating this dreamy otherworldly ethereal pop First on two independent records for the Car Park label, and then on a bigger indie, Sub Pop, where this new album just came out. They're out there
1: promoting that Sub Pop debut, Jim. Teen Dream, it's called. And uh, we had Victoria Legrand and Alex Skelly joining us in the studio.
2: Beach House is in the house. Welcome to the show, everybody.
4: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
2: Let's start in Baltimore, Alex and Victoria, how you two came together. I mean, incredibly fertile music scene, uh, just incredible stuff happening there. How did you guys come together? Uh, well, Victoria
5: moved to Baltimore to play music, and I was kind of just sitting there. And, uh, <laughs> On his porch? <laughs> at you know, the bus station? Or, or <laughs> yeah, I don't know, just, you know, I was putting out the vibe. A friend of hers from college knew me from high school as a musician, and I was kind of recruited to join her old band. Uh, victory. And, then and then he
4: stole her. Then he stole me.
2: Oh, ah, ah, and absconded and formed your own new superstar project.
4: Yes.
1: Well, well, the story goes that you two clicked pretty quickly. I mean, it was pretty obvious that, that things were going to happen musically with you two. Was it, Is that true?
5: We yeah, it was, it, was a, it was just a lucky, one of those lucky things where we had been working together, but never just alone. And by chance, we hung out a few times and would work on music. And it was instantly apparent, you know, I had been making music worked playing music with people since I was 12 and uh, it was the easily the best and most instantly rewarding and amazing experience.
1: What was the intersection between the two of you in terms of the kind of music you liked or just similar ideas about what you could do together? We were
4: just both attracted to certain you know pop music melodies just uh, as aesthetics just yeah but I don't
5: but it was entirely not uh intellectual I think it was very just instinctual. And there was not, nothing discussed ever. It's it like, I want to make this band. It's really a warm sound. And, I want <laughs> you, and then I need a singer that's like this. and you know, it, was it was a f-
4: friends meeting, and it happens to be that the friends end up making music together. And mm-hmm. then they keep being friends.
2: There is that kind of casual... But perfect vibe on your first self-titled album we're three albums into the career now the teen dream just came out i want to talk some more about the development over the course of those albums but but i think it makes sense to have you guys play a song you're sitting there in front of your instruments tell us what you want to play
4: we're going to play zebra
2: excellent Bye. Zebra from Beach House, live on Sound Opinions. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, more music and discussion with the Baltimore Band. And later, Greg and I will review the new album from Erica Badu.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DiRigatis, and we're talking with Victoria Legrand and Alex Scalley, members of the Baltimore based duo Beach House. The song you're hearing, Master of None, is from their 2006 self titled debut. And when they were in the studio with us recently, I asked them about recording that first album. So, so that first record was done in basically like two days? Two days? In the yeah, yeah?
5: basement of my old house. Yeah. We, uh, a friend of ours came and recorded it for us. Yeah.
1: Wow, so that, that was kind of like, it, it, it sounded very casual and no, no major career plans at that point? Or? We were just
4: serious about the music we'd written, but in fa- as far as career, we didn't really. We wanted like, to make a record. Yeah.
5: That's one of the things about Baltimore is that I really think the people there have no concept of what's happening in the rest of the world. Like, you know, I think <laughs> when, I, when I meet bands in New York who are putting out the first record and they're like, yeah, we're shopping it around. Mm. Like that's something that nobody, that never occurs to anybody in Baltimore. And yeah. making a professional recording is another thing that um, almost occurs to no one. Yeah. So you know that we were just wanting to get it recorded. We didn't have any future. You had these mind. songs you were proud of, I
2: right? Mean, and yeah. we wanted
5: when to we had
4: the when we had the recording finished, people would say, "Well, oh, this is a demo." I said, "No, this is this is the record."
5: Yeah. People well, <laughs> we were like, "Okay, so you're gonna." This is how we imagined it. it. And we were like, "No, oh, it's perfect. It's <laughs> it's completely it's completely done."
2: There absolutely is a is a charm and a magic to that record, as there is to the second one, uh, Devotion. And then uh, you you guys left the the car park label and and signed to Sub Pop. Teen Dream. It seems like a a big step forward in a lot of ways. You got to spend more time. There's an expansion of the sound. Was there was there a goal going into making this record to to kind of get bigger?
4: I think we wanted to use the same equation that we've used, which is the guitar, the keyboards, the same sounds we've used, but push them and try to make a more imaginative universe and just, in that sense, push ourselves to expand.
5: Um. But, I mean, like always, nothing was ever intellectual. I think it's just uh, we've been doing this now for three years together, mm. four, four years, touring constantly. And I think that we didn't, you know, like you, you tire of, we didn't want to make a lo-fi recording. We yeah. wanted to be like, okay, let's like imagine these sounds sparkly and panoramic. Let's not imagine them... Muted and hidden far away and reverbed, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a different
4: I think you can still feel a lot of the same intense feelings that you would feel maybe in that darker world But I think that they're carved out a little bit with, with more experience, you know, yeah more live energy
1: We're, we're talking to uh, Victoria Legrand and Alex Scally of Beach House. Victoria, you just gave an Interview a few months ago where you described those earlier records as docile and monochromatic
2: That sounds like a rock critic. And
1: one of of the reasons that you wanted to sort of expand uh, on this record. Kind of harsh in retrospect, (laughs) looking back at your old I can't believe I
4: said dasa. (laughs) It just doesn't seem like a word I would say.
1: Yeah. It sounds
4: like an Alex word. I think that. But monochromatic. Touring
5: as much as we've toured, you you really do grow to, I think. Tire. Yeah, just you're so tired of your old songs, especially the way we do them, which is very, very fixed. Mm. and very much as an arrangement where we reproduce it, try to reproduce it perfectly every night the same way.
4: I think there just comes a time where we get full of these other little tidbits and ideas. I think we're always sort of searching for the next melody or the next thing that we can sort of basically fall in love with, whether it's an old keyboard or a sound on a keyboard. So, you know, Teen Dream, we just played Devotion so many times that it was bursting out of us i think we were just ready to write that record it it was none of our records they've all been written out of i think you know their uh love children basically you know they happen (laughs) because they have to but because you're you're compelled to do it
1: but this record seems to be made along those lines where it was conceived as a a unit of songs that work together and in addition to that you did the the videos which are accompanying this when i you know, when I got this package from Sub Pop, I'm opening this thing up and I go, "What? What is this? The '70s again?" We're getting right. double gatefold records with videos in them, and it's really kind of a cool concept. I mean, the fact that you were so ambitious with with this this was not just about, you know, we're we're creating a song for somebody's iPod. We're creating a an art project here. It seemed like I mean, much more ambitious.
5: Yeah, I mean, part of part of the whole last 12 months was just knowing that we've been working for years and working with ideas and having all this intensity and never having the means to fulfill it and I think that a lot of this record was like okay we're finally in the position where we can maybe have our vision come to life and not have it not come to life because we don't have the money or don't have the resources or don't know the people you know so I think part of it was very much we were like let's go all the way with this creative idea
2: you know Mm -hmm. and you you we were lucky enough
5: to have the ability to
2: you went out and found uh, directors to make these short films one for each song
4: there are people we knew already, that we were friends with, that we met along the road. So it was a combination of of them, and some of we, a lot of them, we couldn't, pre- we would never be able to predict what would they would be able to create for us. It's all based completely on instinct and and gut, you know. And that's the way we picked the songs for the artists as well. We thought, well, you know, so and so, I think that they could do this song, mm. but not based on anything real, just gut. Cool. So and and that's that was a very exciting process for us because we. Surprises, you know, it was like ten different surprises.
1: It was more impressionistic than uh, like a commercial for the record or anything exactly. Like
4: that. It's not definitive music videos, not the ultimate answers, just uh, explorations. And it's in the end, it's a very, I think, fun curation. And it mm-hmm. has a lot of different sides. It has danger. It has violence. It has a little sexiness. Has uh, you know that kind of stuff.
1: Well, we're due for a song. What uh, what are you guys going to play for us?
5: Uh, walk in the park. This is kind of a cru- this is like a crushing Roy Orbison vibe.
2: In the Park by Beach House on Sound Opinions. We are here in the Jim and K. Maybe studio with uh, Alex Scally, Victoria Legrand, Dan Franz on drums. Okay, gorgeous song, but a little unsettling if you stop to look at the lyrics. Uh, You you know, uh, you will slip from my mind in a matter of time. You're, You're writing somebody off pretty. Harsh and cold, there, Victoria. It's
4: pretty matter of fact, though. I mean, that's the <laughs> way it is. You know, if you don't love anybody. You don't love somebody anymore. You gotta go. Uh, done. Just joking. Uh, no, but it's the cruel. You know, it's the cruel reality of life. You can't keep people in your life that aren't. Some people just grow apart, and you can't. You can't keep that from happening.
1: Well, where does Roy Orbison fit into all this? You mentioned that Alex is. A- I just
5: like. I mean, when people are, you know, like in interviews, people constantly want to know what things mean. And there's, of course, like, it's an impossible question uh, for anybody. But I always think it's, for some of our songs, like used to be in that one, I always talk about Roy Orbison because he has all these songs that I think are so artfully done but are so blatant, like uh, It's Over mm-hmm. and uh, Crying. And they're right. just these, like, really obvious things that are just so grand. He makes them so grandiose. Right, mm-hmm. um, so.
1: right. Operatic, right. really. Yeah. And uh, Dark stuff too Uh, david lynch uses his stuff he uses orbison in a lot of his movies and they put a whole nother creepy spin on 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 those songs it's it's really so i guess it all makes sense in that particular they're starting to come into focus huh? they look
2: like such nice people victoria and alex but now we're starting to get to the dark stuff yeah yeah you started it (laughs) you picked the question (laughs) victoria let me ask you about your phrasing it's it's such a unique Approach to vocals, you know, almost where the words cease to matter, and yet you've given us the lyrics uh, on the lyric sheet, so so we can almost take them as as pure feel, or or then study them uh, and, and and get a little deeper. But you, you you know you don't sing words the way I would figure they would read.
4: Well, that's neat. I generally I don't know what how do I answer this question? How do I talk about this? I think for me the melody is always kind of first but I do really fall in love with words and they definitely have to fit together. Mm. They have to feel right together, has to feel that's all based on feeling too. It's it's you can sense when something fits, you know, words have certain, I think for me, sounds that go with them and you can tell when a word feels forced and it's not supposed to be there. That's kind of how I write lyrics. That's very much just sort of a hand in hand type of situation. The music and the words, they, they inspire each other. I hear phrases all the time and see words written and I, I think that they are really powerful and um, symbolic and I like to just write them down. So the, It's not just based influence from the music but it, it's a combination of the two.
1: So you're digging into your notebook when you're thinking about songs and how these words might fit with a particular Some melody. phrases
4: will last in my head for months. I'll just keep one, one or two words. I'll just have them in my head for months. And they'll be all i have for a melody and i'll just kind of wait until i i they lead me to something else mm-hmm. so it's a, a very I, th- I have a i think a pretty natural approach to it
1: and alex your uh, guitar playing obviously a big part of the sound of this band the uh, the rumor has it that you didn't play guitar until you got into this band
5: i was definitely a college strummer uh, mm-hmm. but um uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the ladies but you know just strumming <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no well, yeah I didn't really I was uh I studied the the bass really intensely and the, pi- and the piano and I started playing guitar and it was really cool because I knew music but I didn't know any of the technique associated with it so I feel like I got to play it like I don't know from this completely other perspective where I just I, bas- I basically just do it based around sound and mm-hmm. I never had some like Jerk from Guitar Center, being like, "No, no, you got to do this," like yeah. basically ruining me for the instrument. Which so you didn't sit to a down and people.
2: master the usual uh, encyclopedia of tasty licks,
5: right? Yeah, which actually, like, you, you you see it in musicians all the time. It's like it's this horrible remnant of this really generic person making them play these things for five years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So,
2: <laughs> what uh, can you give us another song and tell us uh, what you're going to play?
5: This one is called Norway.
1: was Norway from Beach House from the Teen Dream album on Sound Opinions Victoria Legrand, Alex Scally, and drummer Dan Franz thank you so much for being our guests on Sound Opinions thanks for having us
4: thank you, we had fun
2: to the entire Beach House performance live in our studio visit soundopinions.org and to make a comment on our conversation or anything in the world of rock call 888-859-1800 and we may put your message on the air we'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the latest from Erica Badu and then it's Greg's turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And that is the one and only Erica Badu with the single from her new album. It's called Window Seat, the song. The album is called, get ready, it's a long one, New America Part 2, Return of the Ankh. Greg, ever since she burst on the scene in 1997 with that first album *Baduism*, it wasn't going to be just music. Erica was almost a religion, a distinctive and powerful female voice in R&B. Born Erica Wright in Dallas, Texas, spiritual, empowered, distinctive. She really was, I think, for all intents and purposes, the female D'Angelo. Now, her last record was was this sprawling concept effort. New America Part 1, Fourth World War. And there was supposed to be Part 2 coming several months later. In fact, it's been between two and three years we've been waiting for this. Kind of makes sense, though. So dense was Fourth World War and so heavy with its political concepts that it really took some time to live with that album. Now she's got uh, Part 2. She's made some headlines recently for that song, Window Seed, which found Erica Wright walking through her native Dallas, uh, taking off pieces of clothing as she strolled along until she wound up at the grassy knoll outside the textbook factory where President Kennedy was shot completely naked. That has become an internet phenomenon, that video. It's not being aired on TV, obviously. We're going to dive into this album and tell you what we think about it after we play this song, which we think is typical of it. Gone Baby Don't Be Long by Erykah Badu from the new album, New America Part 2, Return of the Ankh. And-
1: Gone baby, don't be long on sound opinions from Erica Badu, her fifth studio album, New America, Part 2: Return of the Unc. As telegraphed by that album title, and as you mentioned, Jim, she's complicated, and nothing yeah. is ever obvious. This album is more inward-looking, where his, its predecessor was much more about looking out into America of the first decade of this century and not liking what she saw. You know, mm-hmm. we were coming into the tail end of the Bush administration, uh, very much of a social-political commentary, with angry music underpinning it. Again, a record that was dense and deep and took several hundred listens before you really appreciated exactly what was going on there i think it was one of the landmark records of that decade yeah we were both all over that one Uh, nothing quite sounds like that record this is going to be a little bit disappointing to people who are hoping for more of that energy. It is a much mellower record. It's more inward-looking. She's talking about love, talking about a relationship unraveling. It is a record that is meant to be heard swinging in a hammock, dozing off on a midsummer afternoon. It has that sort of breezy quality to it. But again, if as you pay attention to it, you recognize that weirdness creeping in. That last record was made largely on her laptop. This record was, has a more of a st- in-studio feel, recorded live with a bunch of musicians. She co-produces all the tracks. This is all about vibe. I like the record. It's not going to be an easy listen. It's not that hooky. But I, I still think it's a terrific record. and I'm gonna say buy
2: it on this one. I tell you, Greg, I was skeptical at first. The first three or four listens, I was saying, "Wow, am I gonna really be trashing or on the fence with a burn it for uh, an Erica Badu album?" I've loved everything this artist has given us, and then it kicked in. It's a sleepy album. You worked very hard to avoid that word "sleepy," but "sleepy" is Swinging the word. Swinging in a hammock.
1: That's what I say. I you know? know. I know. look. But and some, I like that vibe. Some
2: people would say, you know, "snooze" is yeah. the word here, but there is a room. In the universe for mellow music, okay, even for me, and it grew and it grew, and I kept coming back to it. So ultimately, it's a, it's a double buy it for Erica Badu. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
0: remember? We were shipwrecked together. I'm the yeah,
2: my As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in the jukebox. Mr. Cot? It's your turn. Jim, this week
1: I wanted to pay tribute to uh, Malcolm McLaren, who died recently at the age of 64. A lot of obituaries about this guy who was this English gadfly, fashion designer, artist, musical maverick, best known as the manager of the Sex Pistols, that infamous implosion in 1978 after reinventing the English music scene in the mid-70s. But McLaren also had an equally influential role in the development of hip-hop, not only an architect of punk rock, but of hip-hop music and bringing it to a wider audience. He took a trip to New York City in the early 80s where he met Afrika Bambaataa, who was holding one of his parties in the Bronx, and McLaren was just blown away. I think he saw the connection between what was going on in the United States inner city and what was happening in the English punk scene a few years earlier, that same sort of spirit of uprooting the establishment and creating a culture around this anti-establishment style. He loved what Bambada was doing, the the, the mixture of the DJs as, as providing the music, the lyricism and poetry of the MCs, the dancing of the B-boys and the B-girls, yeah. and the graffiti art, all part of this new culture. Malcolm McLaren was a great appropriator. And and, and there's an element of exploitation as well connected to it. But I think the spirit of it was really profoundly moving and powerful because he brought this music to a much wider audience, much quicker than it might have enjoyed otherwise. His landmark for me was his first solo album, Duck Rock, and on that record he had a couple of key tracks that became hugely influential in the hip hop world. The song Buffalo Gals, which was later nicked by Eminem on one of his tracks, Mm -hmm. and the song that I'm going to play next called Double Dutch. Here's a song that combines those hip-hop grooves and rhythms that he was seeing in New York with South African township music. So he was connecting these two cultures, the inner city of New York meets the inner city of South Africa, and bringing it together in a wonderful video with this double Dutch dancing that these young African-American girls were doing in the Bronx, you know, the double Jump ropes and they were skipping through it, doing their own little dance routines to this soundtrack. Totally infectious, totally mind blowing, really expanded the audience worldwide for hip hop. Double Dutch from Malcolm McLaren on Sound Opinions.
2: That is Double Dutch by Malcolm McLaren, a tribute dead at the age of 64, Malcolm. Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, big record review roundup, new
2: ones from Management and LCD Sound System. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Beach House was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Drew Bodker. Sound Opinions is produced week in and week out by our own dream pop duo, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader and executive producer, Tori southside Malatia has been mulling over making a video where he takes off his clothes at Forge Theater.
1: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say. Come
0: on and answer your phone, girl. answer your phone, pick up the receiver, I know that you're
6: home. New Messages
3: Hey, my name is Richard, I live in Austin, Texas, and I just had a comment about the... Review of the Usher album, Raymond vs. Raymond. And yeah, Jim and Greg, I agreed with you guys. When I first heard that first song, it sounded like at least 50 other songs I heard in the past year. So there's really nothing special about it. And apparently, somebody agreed with me. Because a couple of days ago, I parked my car to go to work. And among the broken glass on the side of the street where I parked, I found a copy of Raymond vs. Raymond. Smashed up. Unwanted. Very sad for that, but not very sad for the state of modern R&B music. Alright, thanks. Love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. There goes my
6: baby. Uh, there she goes. There she goes. There she goes. Go, you don't know how good it feels to but you. don't you know my baby.
3: And Greg, this is Holly in Brooklyn, New York. Oh my god, I just had to call and thank you so much for your uh, Clash album dissection that I just listened to via a podcast. It was really fantastic. I'm 33, so I discovered the Clash in junior high and high school, and I listened to those records so much. I had the original vinyl copies I found at a thrift store that I haven't listened to them very much since then. And Hearing your dissection today, I heard so many things that I hadn't heard before. From the perspective of a person who's 15 years older, I could look at the political implications of the music in such a different way. I even think I heard a Brazilian drum on Clampdown that I'd never heard before. So anyway, thanks guys. Hey guys, this is JP down Durham, North Carolina Just wanted to thank you for the breakdown of The Clash, London Calling I was in high school when that album came out And I lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the time And we
1: were all like, this is a song about us
0: London calling, see we ain't got no swing Except for the rain and the crunch of pain. The ice is coming, the sun's zooming in. Belt down, expected. The,
3: is the lyrics of that are still just like a kick in the gut. Thanks a lot. This is Nick from Brooklyn. I just listened to your fantastic album dissection of London Calling by The Clash. I just got that album as a Christmas present, and after having listened to it for the last few months, I have to say it's probably the best rock album ever made. I want to nominate my favorite song from the album, which would be I'm Not Down. I think Nick Jones is a wildly underrated vocalist. He doesn't have sort of the detached, cool, or the sneering, bratish punk voice of a lot of people, but I think there's a sincerity in his delivery, which you know really helps him sell some of his lines, like you rock around and think that you're the toughest in the world, but you steer clear of where it gets the roughest. And I've been there. Thanks a lot. Bye.